right, all right, all right. Good morning. How are we? Good, good, good. Man, good to be here with you all this morning. Uh, I was up there like, shoot, I might just have to let the worship keep going, you know. Uh, man, praise God uh, for that. Um, today is my beautiful wife's birthday, and so, yes, yes, yes. I would be uh, neglecting our great love if I did not mention how awesome she is and how she'd be looking finer each year, y'all, right? So, like fine wine in that joint, all right? So, uh, happy birthday to my beautiful bride. Uh, I do say that also intentionally to say, hey, like she's awesome, right? Like she supports uh, this body in ways that are often not seen. You know, we see me up here preaching or Josh up here hosting, not realizing that, hey, Rachel or Natalie or all of the staff spouses and all the elder spouses really help hold up this church in a lot of ways for when I'm working on a sermon or with you, like that's because somebody else is taking care of the home and somebody else is, you know, doing that. Well, when she's discipling women, like they're building up in ways that I can. And so anyway, I just want to honor even the spouses of people on staff or the soon-to-be spouses. What up, Michael? Yeah, I get it. Hey. All right. And so, um, man, there's just a lot that happens there. And so if you haven't taken a chance to honor them, I'm not just saying Natalie. I mean them in general. There's just a lot of lifting up that happens in the background. So make sure you honor them as well. Amen? All right, hey, we are in Ruth, so let's go ahead and flip over there. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you do not have one, uh, the ushers will be coming forward right now with some physical Bibles. If you would like to use a physical one, that is our gift to you. Uh, so just raise your hand, they'll give it to you. We want you to have the word, be able to use that. You can also follow these instructions here. Uh, either put that link in your browser or follow those, and uh, you'll have the notes on your phone as well, since your phone is already out because of the connection page and you uh, tackling that there. But we say us every week because we mean it. We want your eyes on the word, y'all, okay? We really do think that God communicates most clearly through his scriptures and that he still wants to communicate to us and that oftentimes the worship or the sermon is nothing more than a vessel for the word of God to open up and explode in our lives. And so we want your eyes on the word to be able to see uh, that we're not making this up. We think that God wants to communicate to us in uh, very real ways. So if you missed the sermon last week while you're turning to Ruth chapter one, I would encourage you to go back and to listen to that online at some point, uh, it'll make what we're talking about today make a whole lot more sense. And that's actually true throughout this series at large. The book of Ruth really builds on top of itself in a lot of ways. And so uh, if you ever miss anyone, I would encourage you, hey, go listen to that. It'll help uh, uh, set pace and direction for the following weeks, all right? And so as we're continuing our story in this beautiful sort of faith-filled character, last week we focused on her family and the suffering that incurred in their lives. And we asked the question over and over again, hey, do you trust God in the midst of suffering? Right? Like, what does it look like even to trust God in the midst of suffering? Elimelech, who was Ruth's now deceased father-in-law and even Ruth's own husband, clearly did not trust God in suffering. They left the place of God. They left Israel for what they thought was greener grass, only to incur even more suffering. And in the midst of all of that, you don't see any real true faith or any real true trust in God. And now what we're left with is Naomi and Orpha and Ruth, three women uh, all of whom are widowed, none of whom are related, in a male-dominated society at that time, they were in a very vulnerable and even dangerous place. Like we are entering into the story today in the midst of tragedy in a lot of ways, and in a very tragic situation. 
And so when tragedy hits our lives, either because of our own sin, like may have been true for Elimelech, or even just because of the suffering of this world, which encroaches upon us so often, how do we respond to God? What does it look like? And that's what we thought about last week. We have to have resolve about who God is before we enter into the suffering, if we want to make it out of it, all right. You tracking with that? And so this has to be true holistically. And so today we pick up that brokenness and we sort of zoom into the character of Naomi in a lot of ways and also lay the backdrop for Ruth, who we'll be focusing on throughout the rest of the series at large. And we're going to be thinking about the question, okay, how do I respond to God once suffering comes? And so in a lot of ways, last week was us kind of heading into suffering in this direction. And we were saying, hey, do I trust God before I enter into suffering? And then when I'm in the midst of it, do I trust God? And this week, we're actually on this side of suffering now. We're looking back at it and we're going to say, hey, what do I allow suffering to produce in my life? Because in a lot of ways, friends, there's only one or two options as to what suffering will produce, as we'll see even today. It will either produce hope character, faith, steadfastness, these things that we look for that kind of can all be wrapped up in the uh, character idea, or it will produce bitterness, anger, frustration, and a warped view of God and who he is. And it all depends on how we look back at suffering and how we try to figure out what God is doing in the midst of it. And so last week we were heading this direction into it. This week we're out of it, but we are looking back at it and saying, hey, what is my response to this? You tracking with that? And so that's where we're going today, Ruth chapter 1, and we're going to pick it up right there in verse 6. It says, Then she, who is Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now remember, they left Israel because of famine, looking for kind of greener grass. So they left the promises of God, where God said that he would dwell with his people, for the promises of the world, hoping to get food in a lot of ways. We saw that their physical reality was actually highlighting the spiritual condition of their heart, as is so often true in Scripture. But now, it says that God has visited his people. Notice that it did not say it rained and there was food. It said that God visited his people, right? The sovereign hand of the Lord is now bringing the blessing of provision as Deuteronomy 28 even promised that it would, which we looked at last week. And this is God actually providing. See, we as a people are so far removed from like agriculture and actually feeling the effects of famine that we forget that when we have food, it is the very blessing of God right? Like God can decide to reign or not to reign in a lot of ways. And we kind of forget the devastation of famine, right? Because when we're hungry, we just roll up to HEB and buy ourselves some food, right? Or if you got that guap, you roll up to Whole Foods and buy yourself some food. Or if you want to pretend like you got that guap, but you ain't really got it, you go to Trader Joe's, right? And so this is what we do, right? We're like, hey, we just go in, we enter into it. So the harshness of this reality can miss us here, but I don't want it to miss us, y'all. Like this is in a lot of ways, uh, God's hand providentially providing as is for us in every single one of our blessings. And so though there are ways in which we uh, can even receive that blessing of God and, and harvest the land in such a ways where we have food, it is still the hand of God that is providing this. And I hope that we are a people of God that always thinks God for the blessings that we have. Amen. And so this Thanksgiving, when you have greens, beans, potatoes, tomatoes, lamb, ram, you name it, right? Y'all like, what is happening? There's this site called YouTube. Type that in later. You'll be blessed. All right. That was a freebie, right? But when we have that, okay, I pray that we would see the provision of God. 
that even at Thanksgiving, as we're sitting at that table, we would realize the hand of God reigns somewhere, right? He provided blessing for us. Do we respond to that correctly or incorrectly? The reason I bring that up, not to be just silly, but to be serious here, is that, hey, we're actually going to see in a second Naomi did not respond to the hand of God in that way. Actually, she was bitter, as we'll see in a second. And yet, the blessing of God is causing her to return. Not because she's seeking God, because she's seeking the things that God can give. And this is where we see Naomi once again. So, verse 7. So, she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went and returned to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her, two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. And so they're on their journey back, and somewhere along the ways, Naomi encourages the daughters-in-law to return Who knows what the motivation was or how long they were on the journey, right? Like maybe she was far enough away where they couldn't convince her, no, 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 stay in Moab, but not too far where sending them back was like incomprehensible, right? Like maybe she was deliberate here. Maybe she just was thinking as they were walking, what are they doing? Why are they coming with me? But regardless of what's happening, we actually see there's a deep, deep, deep connection between her daughters-in-law and her. Remember, they're not related, right? These were her uh, biological son's wives, and yet there's this deep connection. They lift up their voices. They weep both Orpha and Ruth, and they say, no, 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 we are going to go back with you. And so there's this deep relationship probably because they've experienced a whole lot of suffering together. And oftentimes when you walk with people through suffering, it actually clings you together in a very beautiful way. And so here they are clung together to their mother-in-law and they're unwilling to leave. But this is important for us because in the next section and throughout this whole chapter at large, Naomi keeps trying to push them away in a lot of ways. Though they are wanting to stay and support their mother-in-law, Naomi tries to push them away to almost reject that support in a lot of ways. And I think, family, that we have the propensity to do that as well without even really realizing it. When suffering comes, rather than kind of seeing God's blessing and his provision from community, we tend to push community away, not realizing that it is often community that actually reveals the very face of God to us. And so she now is pushing her only community away, the only people who actually know what she's going through, and she's literally trying to continually send them back, though they long to come with her. There's no sin in them coming with her. There's no uh, any moral code that's being broken. This is actually a providential blessing, and yet she's trying to reject it in a way. And I fear that sometimes when we are hurt, that we also try to reject the community that's around us. Do you know why God puts you in this church family? Or why he may be calling you into this church. It's not just to sing revive me together and feel the joy of the Lord, which I love that. But it's also so that when we're in the midst of suffering, we can walk with each other in it. Do you have that? I think at times we exile ourselves from community, not realizing that community is the, one of the main ways in which God reveals himself to us. And so they uh, are, are now going. They're saying, no, 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 we're not going to reject you. We're going to go with you. But then here goes Naomi and this push away. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? 
Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And so Naomi now, rather than uh, just give them a blessing or say, man, thank you, she actually begins to push away even that much more. And this is where Naomi's cards begin to show. Her hand begins to tip in a lot of ways. For one, she actually responds to them with very, very, very vulgar language, which I know that's hard to see in the English. It doesn't seem that vulgar. But there's a Hebrew word for a womb. That's not the word that's used here. She actually responds to them, do I have sons in my gut? Right? And it's almost this provocative sense that she's now pushing back on them. And hey, listen, she says, even if there was prospect, even if I were to meet some fine man in Israel, right, who had all sorts of camels and donkeys and wanted to provide for us, and we got married tonight, and tonight we conceived, and not only tonight did we conceive, but I actually conceived multiple kids at once, like twins, where you both could marry. Would you wait 20 more years for them to end up growing up? No, my daughters, right? She is responding with this aggression, not this thankfulness or this welcoming, but she pushes back in a lot of ways. And so this is where Naomi all of a sudden seems to be almost overly focused on family, right? Husbands, kids, uh, 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 the name being passed down, legacy, whatever it may be, so focused on it that she's utterly neglecting the fact that Ruth and Orpha want to go back with her into the promised land, into the place where God promised that he would most clearly reveal himself. She was not thinking about them coming to meet the God of Israel. She was only thinking about their situation and circumstance of family. And so in a lot of ways, she was not thinking about them spiritually, but she was only thinking about them physically. She was not thinking about their souls, but thinking about their physical possibility for family and saying, no, 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 this, you can't come with me. There's no prospect for you. What she's doing is she's putting family over the worship of God. Like these women want to go back to Israel with her. Like this is what God promised, that he would make them a people, that they would be a light to the nations, that the nations would come in and meet the living God. And she's not thinking about that at all, right? She's saying, no, 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 I want you to go back. Why? Because she wants them to have family, to have kids. She puts family above God, which, let's be honest, sometimes we can do that too. Can we not? Like what keeps you in a place? The prospect for a husband or a wife or meeting with the living God? Right? Ain't no amens on that? (laughs) Right? I mean, listen, God uses that sometimes, right? But we have to ask ourselves, what do we care about more? Meeting with God or the provision that God gives? Now, family, friends, that stuff is not a negative thing. We just said that God literally blesses us with community, and he actually wants us to be fruitful and multiply and to have family. That is an awesome, a good desire. By no means do we reject that, but when it usurps and it takes the place of God, it's an idol. And this is what Naomi's idol is. Her idol is that of family. And we'll see that all throughout this text at large. The desire and idea of family and reproduction has usurped her desire to see, worship, and understand God so much so that she would push people away from coming to meet with God, to go chase after family. Like that's actually going to give them more joy in the long run. 
And so this is where we're at, right? This is what she's thinking about. This is how she is uh, understanding. And sometimes these idols, they can come in and cloud our view of God and the greatness of who he actually is and the, the beauty of what it means to be amongst God's people. It's not only that that begins to tip Naomi's hand, though, but Na- Naomi actually tips her hand because uh, this is true for the rest of the story now. She proclaims to them, it is exceedingly bitter, she says, for the hand of the Lord has gone out against me, she says. Do you see that there in the scriptures? It has gone. God's hand is against me. He is not for me. He is against me, she says. Naomi responds to suffering. She's on this side of suffering. Looking back, she responds to suffering by becoming bitter and by blaming God. Okay, let me say that again. Naomi responds to suffering by becoming bitter and blaming God. And I so often respond to suffering, and I would guess that you often respond to suffering by becoming bitter and blaming God. Rather than seeing what God's doing through our suffering, we just get angry at him that suffering even came in the first place. And we begin to believe that God is actually against us rather than for us, which rejects all of the rest of the promises of Scripture that he is indeed for us. But suffering taints our view of God and begins to warp the character of God for us so that we look back at suffering and say, clearly God is against me. And it makes us bitter and it makes us begin to blame God. We'll tackle that more in a second. But this is the backdrop of, or of Naomi's uh, theology of God here, right? And so Naomi proclaims that in a way, if they stay, the hand of God will actually be against Ruth and Orpha too. Because she's saying, hey, God's hand is so against me that if you come and identify yourself with me, then God's hand will also be against you, is what she's saying, which is an awesome evangelistic witness to these Moabite sisters, right? <laughs> like, man, she's not painting God in the right view at all, right? And I think sometimes when we suffer, we don't paint God in the right view at all. It's like we don't see the purpose through it. We just feel the discomfort of it, not realizing what God may be doing in the background, Suffering here is revealing that Naomi has no real true faith, no real true trust, that something in there is warped. And maybe, I shouldn't say no real, maybe it's there a little bit, but it's not steadfast. It's not a solid rock. There's corruption in the midst of it in some ways. And so let's keep reading, verse 14. After this plea, this vulgar plea almost, then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Now, one quick side note. When I was first reading this and when I was first taught this, I was taught that Orpha was bad and Ruth was good. Orpha left, bad, Ruth clung, good. Okay? And that's actually not how the author is painting this whatsoever. Right? Like, Orpha originally clung. Like, she was willing to stay with Naomi. And in fact, in a lot of ways, the author is actually painting Orpha in a very positive light, for she was willing to stay. Then she began to become obedient to her mother-in-law's pleas, which obedience is a good thing, and she chose the path of wisdom. Once again, it's not bad to want a family to have that. And her prospects truly did look better in Moab. And so she went back to the path of wisdom in a lot of ways. And the author is saying, look, and she was still like weeping, right? She was like, whew, I'm glad you didn't accept my offer, right? That's not what she did. Right? Like she was clinging still, it says. 
And so this is revealing in her a very, very probably faithful woman, a good daughter-in-law. What the author is trying to do is paint, hey, this woman chose these extreme obedient and wise actions. That makes Ruth stand out even that much more as having almost like reckless faith, y'all. The author isn't painting Orpha as bad. The author is painting Ruth as like almost reckless in her belief and her faith, and her steadfastness in a lot of ways. For there was no biblical obligation for them to stay with their mother-in-laws. There was no law. There was nothing that they had to do. And here Orpha is making the wisest decision. But what Ruth is doing here is she's actually painting this beautiful picture of the gospel for us. And this is where Ruth begins to burst onto the scene. And who will see her and Boaz throughout the rest of this story at large is she begins to display to us what a picture of Christ, what a picture of the gospel looks like. I mean, even think about her in contrast to our main character last week, Elimelech. Elimelech left God and Israel to go try to find comfort, but Ruth is now leaving comfort and Moab to go try to find God. She is a beautiful picture of the gospel in very, very beautiful ways. Naomi, though, still tries to push her away. She almost uses, like, peer pressure, right? Like, your sister-in-law's going, look at her, right? Go do that. But then she tips her hand once again. She says, back to her gods, right? Not only is Naomi focused on family and comfort, but she's even focused on the other gods who seem to be better than her god in a way. And so Naomi either has absolutely no faith or her faith of God has gotten so warped that now she begins to believe that these other false gods, that though all of her scriptures, Naomi's scriptures would tell her that there are no other gods, right? Naomi would say, no, 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 go back to those gods, she would say. She cares so much about uh, uh, other things. She has been so warped by suffering that when she looks back, she's no longer even to share about the goodness of God. In fact, she says, go chase other gods, Right? Naomi tips her hand fully. Suffering has not produced character in her. Suffering has produced bitterness in her. She is bitter at God. She is angry at God. She doesn't believe that God cares about her or is for her by any means. So she tries to push Ruth away. But then comes verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. My, my, my. This phrase is even more profound because of the picture of God that Naomi just painted Who would want to follow a God like that, right? This bitter God that's angry, that's against her. And yet here comes Ruth with this unbelievably deep covenant to her mother-in-law, this beautiful language. This also expresses Ruth's face, for Ruth has probably not heard a whole lot about the God of Israel, except for from her disobedient father-in-law and her ex-husband and now her bitter, angry mother-in-law. Right? And yet still she is trying to cling to this God and this uh, promise and to God's people, even in a lot of ways. I mean, look even how there's a progression of depth that Ruth goes through. Like, where you go, I'll go there. 
And in fact, where you lodge, I'll begin to make my home there. And not only will I make my home there, but your people shall be my people. And not only will I identify with the nation of Israel, but your God will now become my God. I will not go back to my other gods. I will reject those gods because I believe in this God. Even that much more, this won't just happen because you're alive. When you die, I'm going to stay there and I will die. And in fact, my bones will not be carried back to Moab to show that I am a Moabite. I will even be buried in Israel to show that I have fully embraced the God of Israel. I will even be buried where you are buried. This is depth, friends. This is a a deep, deep covenant that she is making in this very, very beautiful way. Ruth, though she was the daughter, almost like adopted her mother in a way, right? I'm going to be with you no matter what, she says. Like, I know it's Thanksgiving week this week, right? And I know ain't none of y'all about to talk to your mother-in-laws like that, (laughs) right? And so think about that if you have a mother-in-law. Like, how absurd would it be if it was like, I will die where you will die. Like, it would almost feel awkward, right? This is the wild faith that Ruth is expressing. It feels almost awkward when we put it into right context. And so here she is, this deep covenantal woman with this deep relational commitment and this wild biblical faith. In fact, what the story is showing us is this almost reckless faith of Ruth, the kind of faith that God wants to see, the type of faith that he hasn't even seen in his own people in Naomi. Because remember, Ruth is a Gentile Moabite, and yet she's expressing this level of faith that not one person in this character has expressed yet. This trust for God, this love for God's people, despite the suffering that she has been through. I mean, remember, Ruth has suffered the same way that Naomi has suffered, has she not? Ruth's husband also died. Ruth was barren for 10 years. She could not have kids it says. And yet when she's on this side of suffering and she looks back at suffering, she does not grow bitter, but she realizes that God might be doing something in and through that. And it produces an even more faithful woman we see. Her suffering was the same, but her outcome was different. And we see this wild contrast in between Ruth and Naomi. Your suffering, friends, what do you let it produce in you? Bitterness, right? Or godliness, Would you think about God in the midst of it? This sort of faith is profound. She didn't allow suffering to harden her heart toward God or toward others, but somehow found this resolve through it. She's on this side of suffering, looks back, and somehow says, man, God is good. I don't understand, maybe, right? She may not have the the right language to understand, but she knows that God is good. As mentioned last week, suffering tends to pull out what we truly believe, who we truly are in a lot of ways. For Naomi, it pulls out this. For Ruth, it pulls out this as well. We see this wild difference, right? For Naomi, what we see is that she's not concerned with serving God. She's only concerned with God serving her. And when God doesn't serve her, she no longer wants to serve God, right? What we see in Ruth is something wildly different. For God has also not seemed to fully provide for her, and yet she's still clinging to this God and even to God's bitter, grumpy people, right? Which also, as a quick side note, a lot of times I know that there's a frustration because you have been hurt, friend, by the church, and therefore you almost want to reject God. But we see Ruth here not rejecting God just because she met some bad Christians. And sometimes we can reject God because we meet people that do not represent him well. But Ruth doesn't do that. There's no excuse of our obligation to figure out if this God is real and if he is who he says he is, even if we have not done the best job of painting him for you. 
And so here she is clinging to God in this beautiful way. Ruth has this deep devotion, this deep trust. In fact, Ruth's suffering makes her a witness to us like 6,000 years later, right? Like we're reading this, we're like, gosh, this woman was faithful. She becomes a, a faithful witness. In fact, this unknown name, this unknown woman in a lot of ways, her faith not only produces a Christ figure for us in a way by which we realize that we should have faith like her, but it literally wrote her directly into the story of God. For we knew nothing about Ruth up until this point. And now this faith God is showing us, this is what he desires, so much so that it writes her directly into the story of God. What do you allow suffering to do to you? Do you allow it to produce bitterness or hope, joy, something else within you? In fact, Tim Keller, he's a pastor in New York, uh, wrote a book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And he says, suffering is unbearable if you aren't certain that God is for you and with you in it. Dang. Suffering reveals what you think about God. Is he for you? Is God for you? It also reveals what you think about God's character. Is he loving you? Is he shaping you? Is he with you for it? Or has the bitter hand of God Almighty stretched out against you and this distant, non-personal God is just afflicting you? What do you believe about God? If there is uh, no uh, understanding of who God is and the fact that he's with us, then our suffering becomes unbearable, friends. It becomes a weight that we are almost unable to live up under. And so this is what Naomi thinks. She thinks that God is against her in a lot of ways. In fact, I love what Paula, somebody on our staff team, uh, said this week during our uh, time of going through this passage. It will be on the screen in Psalm chapter 119, verse uh, 67 68. It says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Is suffering or even affliction for our good? Is God good? Is God maybe allowing this afflicting to happen in Naomi's life so that she would no longer go astray and find herself in the mess that she's in, but rather kind of pivot her back toward God? Or is God not good? Right? Suffering, friends, when God allows it, is for our good. But when we're on this side of it and we look back, do we believe that? And do we believe that he is good, that he's wanting to do something in and through it? See, sometimes our suffering makes us cling to God, just like Ruth kind of clung to Naomi here. When life is hard, even at times because of the result of our own sin, or at times just because of the suffering of the world around us, we are too swiftly uh, 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 ready to kind of blame God rather than try to see what he's doing through it. God is indeed against Naomi's sin here, but he is by no means against Naomi. For if he were against Naomi, she would have been consumed a long time ago. But God is patient with Naomi walking with her, using these situations, and even using the blessing of Ruth to try to showcase how much he is for her and the ways in which he wants to provide for her. The Almighty has not distanced himself from her, but rather is active in her life, wanting to display the goodness of who he is. Ironically, she's missing the very blessing right before her eyes. Like, her suffering has hardened her heart so much so that she was unable to see the wild gift that she had in Ruth. In fact, if you go back to Ruth in chapter 4, at the very end, this is at the end of the story. We'll get to this in a few weeks. But it says, he, this is Boaz, or I'm sorry, this is uh, Ruth's son, shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, Naomi, 
For your daughter-in-law, Ruth, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Like Naomi is so focused on them having sons that she neglects to see that Ruth is worth more than seven sons. In fact, that number seven is the Hebrew number for completion. So she's saying, even if you had a perfect family, like Ruth is more to you than that. And so Boaz sees this, the community sees this, but Naomi neglects to see this because she has become so hardened to God that she doesn't even see the blessing of God's provision in her life right in front of her because all she can do is look back at the suffering and say, God must not be good. And this is what we so often can do right? So hardened that after this beautiful covenantal expression of God's faithfulness and his favor, Naomi just stops talking. In fact, the English doesn't even translate it very well. But in verse 18, after this wild, beautiful gift of of covenant love, like something that we read at weddings even today, the Hebrew reads, when Naomi saw she was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. It's kind of like middle school, you know? Talk to the hand, right? Like she literally doesn't say anything to Ruth again. In fact, who knows how much longer they had in the journey, but you see no conversation. And then as we'll read in a second, even when they go into Israel, she doesn't talk to Ruth. She doesn't even introduce Ruth. She's so bitter at God that she neglects God's blessing right in front of her. And we can so often do the same thing. Does it harden you or help you, family? What do you allow suffering to do? Naomi didn't see the value of Ruth because pain was blocking her from seeing the value of the things around her. Let's finish our story. In verse 19. So the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So she went away full, she says, completely forgetting the famine that actually drove her away in the first place. Sometimes you don't feel the weight of emptiness, family, until you're actually empty. You tracking with that? See, she went away thinking, oh, but I had all this. And it wasn't until she was truly empty that she realized, hey, okay, wait a minute. Now I really am empty, right? And I think we could do the same thing. Naomi changed her name to Mara, which is either wildly appropriate or possibly purposefully, mistakenly prophetic, purposefully and that the scriptures would allow her to do that, but mistakenly on Naomi's part. But there's one other place in the scripture where the name Mara is used as well. In fact, if you go to Exodus chapter 15, as you're turning there, this is the chapter right after the Israelites get freed from the promised land. They've been enslaved for thousands of years, right? God just parted the Red Sea, y'all, right? Like this is what we, it's hard to even imagine or believe that. And so the parting of the Red Sea, they're now in the promised land. And three days after the Red Sea parted, not three years, right? Not three months, like three days later, we see this in Exodus 15, verse 23. When they came to Mara, they could not drink the water of Mara because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara. 
And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Grumbling, complaining, bitterness. Like her ancestors, Naomi's heart was angry at God for the way that her life was turning out. And she believed that the famine and the country of Moab was a better blessing than the place of God, than Israel. And she believed that God was against her. She thought that slavery, just like these Israelites did, was better than walking, through the, walking to the promised land, through the desert in a way. Naomi is experiencing the pain of life and the pain of the desert, the dryness of the desert, this felt judgment that she believes, though it's not true at all. And she failed to see that through those very deserts was the promised land, right? That through the dry affliction of the desert is often the very wellspring of life. And we do the same thing. We forget that through the dry seasons, God is often right behind it, offering us the drink of living water that will satisfy forever, It just won't really taste good unless we go through it. And God is trying to shape and to work us in the midst of that. In fact, I love what Ian Duguide, he's a biblical commentator, said. He said, even calling herself Mara should have caused Naomi to ponder more deeply the events that took place in the wilderness location, where in spite of his people's grumbling, God nevertheless uh, turned the bitter water into sweet and thereby demonstrated that he was the Lord your healer. Just two verses later it says, Was this deliverance from their pain a reward for their goodness? Certainly not, right? It was a landmark measure of God's unfailing goodness and mercy upon an undeserving, rebellious, and grumbling people. Mara was not just the definitive place of grumbling bitterness. It was also the place where God's grace to grumblers was definitively displayed. Naomi was so caught up in her loss that she couldn't see the beautiful treasure that God had given her in in Ruth right in front of her. So blinded was she to God's provision that she didn't even mention Ruth to others. In fact, if the author didn't highlight it for us, we would almost kind of forget about the covenant that Ruth just made. But the author won't let us forget this woman of faith. And in fact, he wants to paint the picture. He or she, whoever wrote this, wants to paint the picture for us. For it says, Ruth, the Moabite, right? From the land of Moab, the daughter-in-law, what? The most unlikely person amongst all these people to be showing this level of faith, she was the one that was doing it, right? And then it says the barley harvest was coming. What is it trying to say? And there's hope on the horizon. There's a glimmer of hope, it says. Why? Probably because of this Moabite Gentile believer's faith in this God. Ruth is a beautiful character, And we, friends, are often tempted to be like Naomi. We allow pain to make us bitter and prideful rather than better and humble. And we uh, need to be careful to not allow that to do that. But Ruth is our example in a lot of ways. Ruth completely forsakes comfort to enter into suffering with Naomi and become a gift to her. And ultimately, this faith literally enters her into the story of God. So much so that it also displays to us a beautiful picture of an even greater character that Ruth is actually foreshadowing, ironically a character of whom she would be the great-great-grandmother to, our hero, Jesus. See, for Jesus, is just like Ruth in this in so many different ways. Jesus, too, made a similar claim to Ruth, right? And Ruth's wildly beautiful covenant to this bitter, grumbling Naomi, right? I will be your people, she says. So Jesus says the same thing to us. Do not urge me to leave you, Jesus would say. No, no, no. But I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Where you go, I shall come. 
he said, and where you lodge, I will lodge amongst you, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and where you should have died, I'll die in your place. See, that's the difference between the two. Jesus offers an even greater expression, and where you should be buried, I will be buried, but I will resurrect (laughs) right? And as we believe in Jesus, as we realize that Jesus is in a lot of ways an even greater root, that though we are often bitter at God, he clings to us and refuses to let you go, friends. Do you think that your God is against you? He is not against you. He is for you, so much so that he would die on the cross to free you from all of the pain and the suffering that you feel. We have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. Why? Because he suffered with us. You do not have a distant God. You do not have a God that does not care about your suffering. He cares about it so much so that he came and took it himself. And where you felt physical suffering, so our God felt that sort of physical suffering as he died on the cross. And where you feel emotional suffering, so our God was sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane because of how emotional he was. And where you feel all these sorts of sufferings, God is there with you. But where you should feel spiritual suffering, you don't. Because our God goes to the cross and he feels that for you and he assumes that upon himself as he yells out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me and enters into spiritual suffering? He was paying what you should have paid so you will never have to feel that, friends. He is clinging to you. He is the undeserved gift that all of us bitter complainers like Naomi do not deserve. And yet God is providentially giving it to us. And so what do we do with that? Well, I think that we can now either model after our Savior Jesus and model after this hero, Ruth, and we can look back at suffering and realize that God is trying to do something in the midst of it, or we can become like Naomi and get bitter at it and get frustrated at God and care more about the comforts of this world than the spiritual reality that he's trying to work within you, even allowing the suffering to come in the first place. God is doing something, friends, and he wants you to realize he is for you. He is not against you. His hand is not out against you. His hand stretched out against his son so that it would never stretch out against you. God is there. He loves you. Do you believe that? What is your view of God as you look back at the suffering you go through? Do you allow it to make you bitter, or do you allow it to grow within you character? For us as believers, I pray that we would realize that God is so for us that even when the evil in this world comes around us, he is trying to work it out for his good and for our good and for our joy in him. And I pray that, man, maybe you don't know, if you don't know who the Lord is even, or maybe you've been hurt, what you felt was the hand of God, and you've maybe strayed away from God at times, or maybe you feel like you're Naomi right now. You are bitter at God for the things that he is allowing in your life. I love what this chapter is showing us. For eight times in this few verses, the word return or turn back is used. What is it saying? Ruth or Naomi is returning. She's returning back to God, and God is going to work in and through her. And I think the promise and the the exhortation the scripture would be to give to us is to, hey, return back to your God. He hasn't forsaken you. He proves that as he dies on the cross for you. You were not forsaken. He is for you and with you and wants to work it out in you. I also love, maybe you know, you don't know who Jesus is. You've never entered into that relationship. You've never wrestled with him. I actually love what the author does here. For in Ruth chapter 1 verse 22, it says that Ruth returned to Israel. How did she return? She had never been there. Well, she went back to her home, which was with God. 
And God is calling you to come back to him, even if you've never been before, for you belong with him, friends. God wants you close and wants to walk with you through the suffering. I want to end with this quote by Tim Keller. In that same book, he says, In the secular view, suffering is never seen as a meaningful part of life, but only as an interruption. Christianity teaches that, contra fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Like, it's hard, y'all, right? We're not saying this isn't hard. This is hard. Contra Buddhism, suffering is real. They would say, oh, it's not really real. It's just a spiritual. No, 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 no. You feel it, right? We feel suffering. Contra karma, suffering is often unfair. Listen, Ruth was suffering, and she is a faithful, godly woman, y'all. Suffering is often unfair. But contra secularism, suffering is meaningful. There is purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a deep nail into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can ever imagine. That's what I pray this church would be in the midst of suffering. I love you guys. Let's pray. God, we thank you for walking.